everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And this is another episode in our series of discussions that we are doing with Carrie Schertz, the backyard professor, that we are calling the Gospel Topics Essay Series. So we go through each essay in the Gospel Topics Library one at a time. And we use this book, the LDS Gospel Topics Series, a scholarly engagement sort of as a lens to study these in, these uh, topics through because each chapter covers a different essay through a different point of view from a scholar. So the one that we are covering in this episode is called DNA and Book of Mormon Studies. And we were so thrilled to be able to have Dr. Thomas Murphy on with us on this episode. He is the expert. We were just pinching ourselves that we were able to get him, weren't we, Landon? Yeah, he's he's really sharp uh, on this and has been studying it for years. And what a great expert and what a great uh, uh, podcast this was because he just came in and we were able to ask him all the questions that uh, we've always wanted to know about the gospel topic essay and DNA. And, you know, is the, is the response accurate? How uh, can we believe the church's uh, answers when it comes to DNA and whether we could really detect uh, Book of Mormon DNA or not? And he answers all those questions. So it was a very scholarly uh, a discussion, uh, but it really got to the heart of the matter. So if you've ever wondered about DNA in the Book of Mormon, this is the episode. This is the episode for you. That's right. And he explains it, what I felt, in a very clear way. Like, we really understood. Because this was a huge smoking gun since it came out a couple decades ago. I mean, this was this uh, led to changes in the Book of Mormon itself on the title page. And we'll talk about that in this essay. So I hope you all enjoy it. I hope you tune in. And thank you so much for Mormonish. Welcome to the Backyard Professor Live Sunday Night Show. We have a really spectacularly informative and interesting show for you tonight. We are going to be having a terrific discussion with a terrific scholar. We want to thank you all for coming to the Backyard Professor Live. We are here to entertain, inform, instruct, and destruct former misconceptions you may have. So let's get this show on the road. Tonight is going to be a good night. Let me say hello to all of you real quick, and then I'll bring on my beloved, wonderful guests. Mosia, Mosiah. Yeah, I get it. How you doing? Doug Vincent, how you doing? Debbie Donovan, you wonderful woman. How are you? Nick Johnson, Newton Lemos, P. 
Peter Higgs, welcome from down other under utter. Yeah, don't. Yeah, I feel like a cow walking through tall grass. I am utterly tickled to be here. Yeah, whatever. Shut up and get the guests on already, cowboy. Laura Paris, welcome, dear. It's good to see you. Mark Crespin, you know it. Here it comes. Wait for it. Three, two, yeah, baby. One, yeah, baby. Just for you, Mark. I don't know why we started this tradition, but it's awesome. Dan Vogel, the man. I love your book. I'm I'm looking in it again. I tell everybody about it. I love it. I've told everybody, if for nothing else, buy it for the introduction. So I hope I'm helping you sell at least 50,000 of those little babies. We're going to get it sold out so that you have to do a second edition. And Dan is hard at work on his next project. So let's bring in our guests. I have with me my two favorite heroes of the podcast world besides all of the others because everyone is a hero for me and that would be thomas murphy what are you doing here hello young man how are you <laughs> oh, i thought you're bringing the others on but i uh, was i am i'm just being a smart <laughs> aleck that's what i do so I have the world-class professor, Thomas Murphy, and he is the real professor here, not just the backyard professor. And I have the lovely schoolyard professor, Rebecca Biblioteca, and I have the dynamic, the magnificent, the truly wonderful Landon Brophy, the junkyard professor. How's everyone doing tonight? We are great. Great. Have a hangover from your party last night, Carrie, yeah. but uh, other than that, we're ready to go. <laughs> hey, wait, hold it. We only served pop and uh, ice cream and water. That'll we did, yeah. That'll do it. And delicious food. Boy. Just hanging with Carrie's enough to give anyone a hangover. <laughs> 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 well, in that case, you three are in double Dutch as well as the rest of my audience. So, so uh, we are really excited because, Dr. Murphy, you are truly a classic. And, and I don't mean that because of your rage. Don't do it. Don't <laughs> Isaac Asimov on me. Isaac Asimov hated being called classic. So no, 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 no. That makes me too old. I don't want to be a classic. But your scholarship really does get to the heart and the idea of so much cultural reality for the indigenous inhabitants of this continent through time and your background is Mormon, you was Mormon, the DNA issue comes along, something that kind of blindsided us all, didn't it? You and Simon Southerton have been two of the foremost uh, Mormon scholars who have, I remember, I was an apologist, Tom. I remember when, that. But yeah, yeah, unfortunately, I was an obnoxious one. Now I'm an obnoxious postmodel. <laughs> uh, when I was an apologist, I remember when you came out and your famous words, we have a problem. <laughs> because Dan Peterson and Bill Hamblin and John Gee, you know, I was, I was associating with the Farms Boys. And... Uh, we were all saying, yeah, Tom Murphy does have a problem. He doesn't understand DNA. Well, now, how far are we down the road here, 
25, 30 years, and now the shoe's on the other foot. Who understands DNA and who doesn't? So thank you for being on the show. Uh, Rebecca, would you like to say hi to our beloved guest? And I'll shut up and let you say hi to And then Landon, you ask him the tough questions. Oh, wait. No, we've got to hear the presentation first. <laughs> oh, it'll come. It'll be fine. No, I would love to tell the story of how we we got uh, Tom to come on the program, which is, I think, so funny. So as we all know, we're going through each Gospel Topics essay, one at a time, one episode per essay. So we knew that this week was going to be Book of Mormon and DNA Studies. That's the title of the Church Gospel Topics essay. So we thought, oh, this might be a little out of our wheelhouse. Why don't we try to find an expert? So Landon and I kind of put our heads together like, who could we invite on? Let's see if Thomas Murphy would come on. So as you guys also all know, we are using this book, the LDS Gospel Topics Series. Everybody hold up your book. We use this as we study the church essays. That's right. And we pay attention to the, the essays that are written by different scholars. Each, each chapter in here is a response to a Gospel Topics essay. So we called Tom. We talked. We're going to have him on the show. And then I said, well, I guess I'd probably better read the essay in the book. I'd already read the church essay. And I go to the essay in the book. He's the author of the essay. <laughs> I did not do my due diligence before, but then it gave me goosebumps because I thought, oh my goodness, we literally booked the author of the essay. So this is not going to get any better than this. We're going to talk about the church essay. We're going to talk about his amazing essay in this book. This is going to be a real treat. So we're just, we're excited. I'm only one of the authors. So the That's other true. author, my co author, Angela Baca. Yeah. Angela Baca is also yeah. there. Yep. Yep. Yep, so. no, and he has a splendiferous documentary that uh, you have kindly shared uh, a link with us, and we will put that in the uh, the description on this uh, topic. And we're going to encourage everyone to watch that documentary. It is beautifully done. It was very, very fun and interesting to watch. So, and it, it's titled in layman's terms, with layman spelled like the Book of Mormon layman. Yes, I thought that was clever. L-A-M-A-N. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that because uh, as we went through the essay, you know, uh, Tom, you're you're part. Uh, you you have some indigenous blood, correct? You want to tell us a little bit about your history, and then Angelo uh, Angelo's as well. Yeah, so I was uh, raised in southern Idaho, not far from. From where Carrie lives now, I uh, but uh, I my ancestry traces back uh, to on on my mother's side uh, early early Mormons as well as uh, a Mohawk family that converted to Mormonism uh, later and came west uh, and so I grew up with these stories of uh, having a Lamanite princess in my family as as the, my grandma and mother would say. I, and now I've learned that that's quite an offensive term to use. It's inaccurate in many ways. The, the Lamanite, let alone the princess. Uh, and uh, But anyway, that was the, the way I was raised. So for me, the Book of Mormon was, uh, it was like our family story. You know, it was, there was that personal connection uh, to it. Uh, however, because I was raised primarily in white settler culture, when I embarked on this work, uh, I really wanted 
to to consult with uh, native scholars and uh, Angelo Baca was then a student at the University of Washington. He actually reached out to me first, but we began a collaboration uh, shortly after I published the first uh, peer-reviewed article on DNA in the Book of Mormon. It was in a book called American Apocrypha and was called the Lamanite, Lamanite Genesis Genealogy and Genetics. But anyway, Angelo had reached out to me and we started a collaboration first around uh, his film in layman's terms that became his master's uh, thesis. At, at the University of Washington. Uh, and then we've collaborated on a number of other projects over the years that had nothing to do with Mormonism. Uh, but in 2015, we decided to come to get back involved in, in Mormon studies and did an article responding to the, the essay, not the DNA essay, as well as the race essay. It's called Re Rejecting Racism in Any Form, Latter-day Saint Religion, Rhetoric, and Repatriation. And I've sent a a link to a free copy of these articles to, to Landon to put in the, the show notes. But anyway, Angelo and I've been collaborating on uh, for the for a number of years. He is uh, also raised Mormon. Uh, his mother was in the student placement program. Uh, he's uh, in, enrolled with the Navajo Nation, but also of Hopi descent uh, and uh, just an excellent scholar. He's at currently he's got a PhD now from New York University in anthropology. And he teaches uh, uh, communications or native film studies at Rhode Island School of Design, which is one of the, the best film schools in the world. So, wow. So when, when you wrote this, one of the things we noticed as we started reading through it, and you actually, uh, when we talked uh, yesterday, you had actually mentioned that uh, you guys are trying to look at re-examining how we look at the DNA more from an indigenous terms and how that how the term Lamanite and how the church's uh, teachings that all the people, basically North America, South America, the Pacific Islanders, all of those people that they want to refer to as Lamanites, how that has basically affected their culture and affected them as as peoples and almost, uh, you know, stolen their 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 culture and that it's it's time to give it back. And you've been trying to reframe uh, the the uh, the the, the, how we look at the church's essays and how we look at uh, the DNA with the Lamanites. And so as we read through, we were looking and we were going, okay, our, our audience is going to want to understand, you know, are the things in the, in the church's essays, are they valid? Are there, are there counter arguments valid or not? Is this science and the things they say about science correct? They'd like to throw things in to cast doubt upon it. And so with, uh, with Tom here, uh, it's great because we're going to get to see both sides of this. We're going to get to see, you know, is this credible? Is the science correct? Are the responses to the essay correct? But also, how does these responses affect the indigenous uh, and native peoples? Uh, and how has that impacted their culture? And so anyone who wants to see it, that, that film in layman's terms really captures that. He talks to uh, some people in Hawaii, uh, the, the people in upstate New York, more the Native Americans. I'm trying to remember, I don't think he hit any South Americans, but obviously with the church, they try to teach to everybody's a Lamanite until we get into the essay. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 it's a very small population. There's hardly anyone who's a, who's a, who, who fits these categories. So we're going to look at that. And so we've got a, a, some slides we'll pull up and we'll just use these to guide the conversation. And as we get there, we're going to start asking questions and people in the uh, 
in the chat if you if you have questions or you have things you ever wanted to know about DNA because we aren't the experts. That's why we brought uh, Professor Murphy on because he's got that that kind of knowledge to be able to to, to troubleshoot these uh, these challenges that the church throws at us. So let's throw up that first slide, Gary. Uh, just before we do, it's uh, I, I want to I, I just thought of an analogy because of the way that you have discussed for. Uh, Professor Murphy's excellent work with indigenous people, you're trying to get their point of view. Uh, Robert Rittner did the exact same thing with the Egyptology and the book of Abraham. And so uh, for you to be in that kind of a camp, I would propose is a terrific honor on your part as well, because the church has tried too hard to make absolutely everybody in the world white and delightsome and Mormon, and it's not working. So that's how it is. So let's go to this first slide. Yeah, let's jump in this because as, as, as Rebecca and I started reading through this, boy, we, we were reading it in the car and we were just getting angry. <laughs> we weren't even one paragraph in and we're going, what in the world? We, we just started getting angry. Um, so. Uh, we'll go ahead. Let's go. Go ahead. This is what what we've done is we've just picked uh, certain paragraphs out of the uh, out of the essay, uh, ones that we for, felt were the most con uh, controversial or the most where they make claims that they they either could back up or couldn't back up. There's a whole section that goes over DNA and mitochondrial DNA and how you use DNA, and we didn't want to get in the technical side. We just wanted to get more into the you know are these questions uh, accurate and are the things that they stated accurate. Um, so the book, the first question is, is the Book of Mormon historical? And uh, uh, it's a little small, but I'll go ahead and try to read that. Uh, this is the first, uh, I think this is actually the first paragraph of it. Mm -hmm. And they say, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints affirms that the Book of Mormon is a volume of sacred scripture comparable to the Bible. It contains a record of God's dealings with these groups of people who... Uh, migrated from the Near East or West Asia to the Americas hundreds of years before the arrival of Europeans, uh, which which this in alone was was very upsetting as we read this paragraph because uh, you know they talk about the Near East or West Asia they they throw in that wet I don't remember any migration from West Asia in the Book of Mormon um, or well from from the near I, I should say from the they're saying Near East or West Asia, which is, I guess they're calling that Jerusalem area. But the DNA goes completely counter to that. And we'll get to that. He said, although the primary purpose of the Book of Mormon is more spiritual than historical, some people have wondered whether the migration it describes uh, is compatible with scientific studies of ancient Americas. The discussion has centered on uh, the field of population genetics and developments in DNA science. Some have contended that the migration mentioned in the Book of Mormon did not occur because the majority of DNA identified to date in modern native peoples most closely resembles that of Eastern Asian populations. Um, so right off the bat, as we read this, uh, they, they go right up, they go right at, okay, we're saying the Book of Mormon is spiritual. We're, we're not really saying it's, it's historical. Um, Rebecca, as we read that, we got 
pretty upset about that. You want to kind of say they they got so upset they emailed me and they said we are swearing right now. We will try to control ourselves. Yeah, I think our, our criteria for choosing what we kind of focused on is if it may just say, oh come on. You know? yeah. <laughs> we call it the oh come on criteria, you know, because we're of an age where we of course remember something very different, you know, and and when you read this, you know, it's very subtle. Some people wonder, you know, who are these people? And and you know, just the idea that it could even be considered not historical, that was not at all anything that any of us of a certain age grew up with. So that right away made us think, okay, I see what direction this essay is, is going to go. They're just very much backpedaling um, to make some of their arguments make sense and to be a little more convenient. So we right off the bat, were like, okay, this is going to be interesting. What did you think, Carrie? Were you also throwing the essay behind you like you do your book? <laughs> Uh oh, here he goes again. I should never encourage him. That's, oh, no. <laughs> we experienced that firsthand. We were at his house last night, and you have to duck. It's kind of, you know, one of those. Three books. Yeah, We've got pictures. Yeah, the, uh, the, the thing I, I found about so many of, if not all of them, uh, so far the ones that we've explored, is there always just seems to be a, a subtlety. There seems to be a hidden hook that the church will lead you down a, a certain kind of thinking and there's this hook that you don't see and then they grab you. And it's that hook, and I'm not trying to be negative, but it is not as straightforward as anything Tom has written concerning this subject. And I think uh, it's, just, it's unfortunate that's the way they handle it. So what was your reaction on all that, Tom? Well, you know, when I write about other scholars, uh, I include their names and I include a citation and a link to their work so that people can read other scholars in their own words. Because it's, you know, anytime we're critiquing somebody else's work, work, it's possible that we misunderstand it. It's possible that we misrepresent it as well in, in our work. Uh, and what I noticed right away is that, you know, some people, I kind of recognized myself in that, right? Uh, and Simon Southerton, I'd put in there as well. But it's not just us. It's the the, the whole uh, field. There was a, a video that both Simon and I participated in called DNA versus the Book of Mormon. And then put out by a Living Hope Ministries. And they interviewed a whole slew of uh, geneticists and anthropologists and biologists. And uh, we all, all were, the, even, even the LDS ones that were interviewed in there, like Trent Stevens and D. Jeffrey Meldrum, uh, I'll pretty much acknowledge that there is no affirmative evidence uh, from genetics for the Book of Mormon. And th that is a positive element that this, this introduction does. It acknowledges essentially what I almost got excommunicated for uh, saying is that there's no affirmative evidence to support uh, the Book of Mormon uh, coming from DNA. Uh, and, you know, so it's nice to say, okay, I was right. Uh, maybe that's why they backed off excommunicating me. Uh, after the, the the media pressure got a little hard on him, I think I think that's probably part of it. Yeah. The, the other thing that I was thinking is that I like that statement that it's more spiritual than historical. Unfortunately, it's couched between one that a statement that suggests that it's historical, that there were actual migrations, uh, and then a statement says, "Well, for those who who worry about the history, here's here's." Uh, a, a way to resolve it, uh, presumably. 
I, and, and I wish they had just made the entire essay about read the Book of Mormon spiritually rather than historically, and what could you get out of it from that? I mean, that would be an amazing essay to read. I'd be delighted to do that. Of course, Tom, if we read it only under a spiritual and not a historical, there'd be no reason to wonder about the DNA uh, because right. we, we would be saying there doesn't matter if these are real people. Uh, but it seems like it would. It does matter whether this these people really happen, especially as you look at it from your point of view with how it's affected the indigenous people, because it's very hard to say, well, it's a spiritual book that talks about all of these people. And yet uh, they've basically stolen the culture of these people because they're saying this is historical and true. Therefore, your people, uh, you know, are going to become white and delightsome. They were the, the descendants of these people. And so it, it almost has to be historical uh, in order for the book to to have meaning to a lot of these people. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, one of my my favorite uh, native scholars, P. Jane Hafen, uh, says basically to present the Book of Mormon as history is a singularly colonizing act. Uh, it's, it's a way of uh, erasing indigenous history and replacing it with uh, a, a history that came out of a seer stone in a hat. Uh, and, you know, I think that actually Searstones in a Hat seemed to me like a really cool way to produce a story. Uh, but it's a story. It's not history. I've never, never met a historian that 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 found uh, a history in, in, a, in a hat or in a Searstone. But it, it sounds like a really cool, creative way to to spin a story. And that story might have other kinds of truths that are not historical, but, you know, might have, you know, sometimes fiction can be more powerful and more having a bigger impact uh, than, than than history. So I have no objections to using a, a seer stone in a hat as a way to, as a device to catalyze spiritual uh, thought and ideas, but then to turn around and present it as if it were history, that that's fraud, you know, to put it bluntly. Well, and then to ensure that everybody who wants to remain in the church must follow that interpretation or you're not faithful you're 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 made to feel guilty you're made to feel lesser than and that's when i entirely agree with you and and this is interesting tom because 10 years ago i would have vehemently disagreed with you well 15 years ago i would have vehemently disagreed with I you i remember you doing that I actually did, didn't I? Yeah, you and I kind of butted heads, and and here we are. You won, my friend. So, <laughs> you and the evidence. But but yeah, that's that's an important point. The uh, the stone in the hat is actually, like Dan Vogel would say, that's pretty clever. That's genius. That's that's kind of cool. But don't tell us it's history, and we have to believe that. So. Yeah. Right. And, and if I could add, I was thinking when you talk about erasing an entire culture. So my grandparents went on Book of Mormon tours in the 50s and 60s. That It was huge. They would go to South America. They would go on these Book of Mormon tours. They would come home. All of us grandkids would gather around and look at the slides. And we would see all this incredible art and the architecture of Mesoamerica. But we, of course, were told this is a baptismal font. And then they showed us that this is, you know, the Holy of Holies. Or, you know, I didn't think much about it as a child. But as I got to be older, I understood that they almost literally have separate tours. If a tour guide says this is a Mormon group, they will tell them this 
false narrative. Other tour groups come in, they'll give them, you know, the more scientific, what they know to be more true. So it is, it's a complete fabrication. The reality is erased, but people like my grandparents back in the day, they loved that. That was their reality. There was no other reality. This is a Mormon baptismal font that the Lamanites used. And that was their, that was a fact to them. So it's disturbing now in hindsight. And the other half of uh, P. Jane Hafen's, uh, she's a Taos Pueblo scholar. The other half of her uh, statement is that uh, to listen to Native people tell their own stories is a decolonizing act. Uh, and that's why I'd encourage everyone to watch in layman's terms and, and hear Indigenous people uh, tell the story in, the, in their own terms. Uh, Pete Jemison, whose work is featured there, Angela and I just uh, hung out with him after the Mormon History Association in New York. Uh, and I uh, found it, uh, you know, a great chance to reconnect with him after doing this film nearly 20 years ago. Uh, and, you know, we could take that sort of approach. Uh, the LDS Church could uh, take an approach that, in, that recognized the Book of Mormon as a story uh, and indigenous stories as a story as well. But those are the indigenous stories where the Book of Mormon is a settler colonial story one imposed upon native people rather than uh produced by them interesting yeah yeah very excellent insight yeah and the church itself seems to be divided on really who these people are where they're from carrie you want to pull up that uh, trexmo slide uh, as we all know where rebecca loves uh doing the trexmo there it uh, is. The star trek <laughs> but uh you've got this, this one of my favorite in the ones. church yeah <laughs> Heartland, Mesoamerica. Yeah, it's That's the right. Class, right? Right there. And we sit back and we watch those two sides that go, you know, even, uh, uh, Carrie, you had some recently on your show discussing the, the, the Heartland model versus the Mesoamerican model. And it's funny because, you know, some are saying, no, it happened in Mesoamerica. Others says, no, it's, it's in the heartland of America, which would make it two completely different sets of people. Uh, if it's in Mesoamerica, you know, you're talking, you know, Mayan people. Uh, Olmec people. If it happened in the in the heartland, we're talking about Native American tribes uh, that would have been the Lamanites or, or the descendants of those people. Uh, the church wants to grow that model and take it to the almost the entire north, northern and southern hemisphere, as well as the, the Pacific Islands of the seas. Um, so, Tom, uh, any any thoughts on that or any I, I mean, I, I'm assuming that you guys looked at both Heartland and and uh, Mesoamerican <laughs> for uh, for DNA samples. And did you find any links to anything uh, Semitic or or from uh, that, that looks like it came from Western Asia as opposed to Eastern Asia? Well, you know, I was raised with a more of a hemispheric uh, model of the book of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and what's interesting is that this basically this church's essay on DNA rejects the hemispheric model outright. Yeah. And so that, that's Talk. actually quite, quite amazing. Cause that's I'm Mormon. <laughs> All right. I mean, you know, there at, at the time with that Simon and I were uh, first publishing our research, I, the, there was a small group of people at, at, at BYU associated with farms and fair and that, that, Carrie Shirts guy had something to do with that. Uh, wasn't very fair, but anyway. 
<laughs> they, uh, those groups, these small groups were advocating a limited geography and they actually stole the idea from the community of, or the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, the RLDS. And they're the ones who first came up with a limited geography in Mesoamerica. And then it gets adopted by uh, folks at, at BYU. Uh, and, but it, that was a, not a mainstream LDS point of view, uh, at least in my experience. Uh, and uh, that's this DNA has totally turned that upside down. So now there are competing limited geographies. Is it, is it a Heartland limited geography or a Mesoamerican limited geography? And on one hand, they want it to be very limited. So when they're talking about the DNA evidence, they say, well, it all disappeared. Uh, and yet both of those models, actually, when you look at them closely, they they involve millions of people and millions of acres of land. I mean, it, it's it's not really that small in terms of when you actually start putting it down on a map. I mean, Brant Gardner has a, a, a recent essay in The Interpreter trying to to, to make the, the limited geography into a teeny tiny one. Uh, and, you know, but otherwise it, those are just really way too large uh, for plausibility. Uh, and it, to answer the question about what did we find in, in terms of the genetics, there was no, and there still is, no affirmative DNA evidence of any pre-Columbian migration from the ancient Near East, whether you're talking about Southwest Asia uh, or, uh, North, uh, North Africa, or uh, the bottom corner of Europe along the Mediterranean, uh, none of none of that area uh, do we find uh, prior to Columbus. Uh, and so, it it eliminates all possibilities. And you know, even though in my essay I did my Lamanite Genesis genealogy and genetics, I did focus primarily on the hemispheric model, and and so did Simon Southerton in his work. But neither of us avoided looking at the limited geographies. I, I predicted that the limited geographies would, would become more prominent uh, because of the DNA. Uh, but we tested those as well and found them equally uh, failing. And, and he's saying this, folks, July 2nd, 2023. This is the very newest information. Uh, we still don't have anything. And... How long this has been going at least throughout our lifetimes, right, Tom? Yeah. Well, and I like let me address kind of a, a a big problem with the with Rod Meldrum in particular and the the Heartland advocates because they are actually using uh, false narratives. They're being deceptive uh, in their uh, presentation of DNA evidence. So they take the X lineage, which both Simon and I looked at before we published our work. Uh, and this X lineage is one, it's a maternal lineage. So there's five major maternal lineages that are found in Native American populations. Uh, they're called A, B, C, D, and X. The, the A, B, C, and, and D, because those were the first matrilineages identified. So a, a matrilineage is your genetics going through your mother's 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 mother. Uh, along using our mitochondrial DNA, uh, and that was the, the some of the first uh, genetic evidence or DNA evidence, I should say. Genetics includes a broader uh, spectrum, but the first DNA evidence was mitochondrial DNA that was being looked at, and uh, the X lineage wasn't identified as as early because it's relatively rare, even in native populations. Uh, 
about one to two percent some populations a little bit higher uh, and those populations just happen to be uh, in northeastern uh, America uh, and it happened to be in the same area where uh, Joseph Smith uh, published the Book of Mormon and so uh, when I was looking at it initially I was very interested in this ex-lineage and you know I thought oh well maybe there is some sort of connection uh, and uh, so I started delving into the research uh, quite deeply and I found even back in 2001 when I would, was writing that work originally uh, that uh, the evidence already showed the ex-lineage was way too old uh, to be a Book of Mormon population. Uh, and although it wasn't widespread in Asia, it had been found in a few locations in Asia. There was one in, in Siberia, uh, and at least as relatives of uh, the, the X2A lineage, which is the one found in, in the Americas. Uh, and so it was clear that X lineage couldn't be uh, evidence for the Book of Mormon. Am I getting feedback? No, no. There's a little bit on my end that I can hear. Not bad, though. I've, I've been able to understand you. Um, the audience hasn't been complaining about any kind of echo or anything. So. Yeah, they're just complaining about my lighting. <laughs> hey, Landon looks good if it was pitch black. Or, yeah, we're, we're, we're at Mormonist Studios North, so Rebecca, yeah. we're at my house, and Rebecca's in my studio, and I I'm knew in that I the needed the ring lighting right more than he window, did. So <laughs> it's adjusting as the sun goes down. But I do hear a little bit of something again. Oh, my gosh, this happens every time, so I'm not sure. Hopefully it won't get worse. I don't know if someone has feedback or we need earphones, but ah. okay. Well, oh, I do hear myself feedback. Yeah. So while uh, we're doing that, let's pull up the let's pull up the next slide because the church, uh, the church does what the the church always does when they don't have an explanation. Is that is they attack the science. Um, uh, Rebecca, can you read that? Is that too small without your glasses? <laughs> if I lean way up and everybody looks up my nose, no, I can read it. So is DNA science credible? They're going to ask this question because here in 2023, we still don't know if DNA science is something that we can trust. So um, basic principles of population genetics suggest that the need for a more careful approach to the data. The conclusions of genetics, like those of any science, are tentative. Yes, they're very tentative. And much work remains to be done to fully understand the origins of the native populations of the Americas. So right there, that little statement casts a lot of doubt um, and also gives people a lot of reassurance that although you may have heard that there's all this information about DNA and DNA studies and the DNA not matching, we're here to tell you that that's, that's tentative and, and there's still a lot to be learned. So you can kind of rest easy. I think it's a yeah, reassuring essay. If, if that causes you some concern to hear about these new DNA studies. So what did you think, Carrie? They, they don't, they, does it, is this just me or does it appear to you that um, they actually do take this approach though, with every single yep. book of scripture? Yeah. Book of Abraham is what I immediately thought of. I, I hate to say I have Book of Abraham on the brain, but what are they always saying? Well, the Egyptologists don't know everything yet. We don't quite have all the full meaning. So we don't have all of the papyri. Maybe there really is a lost scroll or whatever. They're, they're always trying to kick the can down the road, it appears to me, in order to what, help people say, okay, yeah, th there are issues or else there may be issues, but it's okay because we still have the scripture, thank 
goodness, and we can still maintain our faith and testimony. That's my take. Yeah, these things are tentative. Science is just tentative. It's you know, look, look. They used to think you know the world was flat, and 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 uh, you know, so that's they were wrong. They're and they're wrong here. It's eventually we're going to find things, and they don't make the connection, or they never state that we're we're getting closer and closer. We're not getting further and further away from identifying you know where these groups are from, and, and we're really nailing down on it. So, uh, Tom, is there any valid? validity and that the science is just tentative at this point uh, and that we're going to find this missing missing race in the future. Well, if it's so tentative, why change the word of God or at least the introduction to the word of God? Yes. Checkmate. Beautiful. It's, it's, the evidence is strong enough to, to change the Book of Mormon itself. I mean, uh, in 2006, uh, they edited the introduction to the Book of Mormon, uh, which, you know, Notably, didn't come from Joseph Smith and the Seer Stone, uh, but came from probably Bruce R. McConkie in 1981 when they were first, when LDS scholars were first really taking on quite strongly this uh, limited geography. It was a pushback against the limited geography by putting a statement in the introduction that said uh, that the American Indians are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. Uh, that was a rejection of uh, the limited geography. Uh, so that they peel back and change it now uh, to say among uh, it, it, the American Indians are among the ancestors of the American Indians. Well, yeah, can you blow up slide seven, Carrie, while he's talking about this? Yeah, we did uh, put this it, on a slide that, because that shows it all of well. us grew up with that statement Le on the slide. Leave it you to all a, knew it. That's what it was. You can't tell it, it to wasn't a there. An ex and now it says something different. One word. <laughs> yeah, if you can pull that up, that Number shows where they where they've made that change. And right, there yeah. we go. There it is. That's yeah. what Dr. Murphy is talking about right yeah. there. That's the one book. word. Now we were raised with the one on the left, the standard. No yeah. question about it. Yeah, so that they changed it first in 2006 in a privately published uh, version of the Book of Mormon, and then in the LDS English versions in 2013, uh, the many of the foreign language versions are still the the principal ancestor. And uh, every time a missionary comes by to talk to me, I ask them to pull out the Book of Mormon and uh, check on it. And I have yet to have one that's come with the, the new version. So I don't know how widespread it is. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah, and they're mentioning that in the chat that it was the double day, double day edition that they sent out and they changed right. uh, from from principal to among, which is which is telling because uh, the principal is uh, to 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 say that they're not the principal ancestors anymore that there were all these other people there becomes a huge thing because it actually contradicts what the Book of Mormon itself tells us. So not only are you, you're changing it to meet the DNA, but you have to actually change the story of the Book of Mormon to make it fit into that new, into that new narrative. And we do want to get to that in, in just, in just a few minutes. So um, let, let's go to the next, to the slide number four. Um, and I know this slide didn't, uh, didn't quite uh, come through right. Um, but got uh, th this picture kind of shows that a group of, of uh, natives from uh I would say this is probably South American uh, because we want to include all the different peoples that the church claims to be, uh, you know, Lamanite people. 
And sorry about the wording uh, didn't convert from PowerPoint to the uh, to the slideshow for StreamYard. Uh, but Carrie, you've got that there. Do you, do you want to read about that? And the question that we're going to ask Tom is, should should we see the DNA from the from the Near East or from Western Asia? Uh, should it be detected in some of these populations if the Book of Mormon really happened in the way that it, it said? So, Carrie, you want to read that? Nothing is known about the DNA of the Book of Mormon peoples. And even if their genetic profile were known, there are sound scientific reasons that it might remain undetected. For these same reasons, arguments that some defenders of the Book of Mormon make based on DNA studies are also speculative. In short, DNA studies cannot be used decisively to either affirm or reject the historical authenticity of the Book of Abraham. Now that's not Abraham. Apologetic. <laughs> that's typical apologetic. That's how they talk. Yeah, I think that said Mormon, but I think Abraham was. Carrie sees as likely, Abraham. Yeah. No matter what it says, Carrie sees Abraham. It's yeah. Well, and here's here's the other issue about this, because they're virtually forced to take this approach. Um, you know, they've even gotten to the absurd proportion position. I mean, that uh, there are some items, there are some things that the church remains neutral on, and yet we're told that their deity knows all and that their deity talks to them every Thursday night in the upper room of the Salt Lake Temple over hot chocolate and donuts. I mean, come on, man, let's, let's get consistent. But, and I know Tom would be familiar with this, um, we don't have a way to fundamentally prove or, as they say, confirm or refute the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon or the Book of Abraham or any of Joseph Smith's visions or truths in the scriptures. But we can approach this with a probability. And we would be justified based upon where the evidence points either for or against in either accepting or rejecting whatever the proposition is based on evidence and being open to the fact that future evidence we will look at. Is that off base at all? Time? I mean, that appears to me like that's your life work right there, Dr. Murphy. Yeah. Well, it, if the Book of Mormon account as presented in the text actually occurred, it most definitely would uh, have registered genetically. Uh, if, even if you grant a limited geography rather than the text as written, because it is not a limited geography, uh, then uh, even if you grant that, you would still see uh, genetic traces of a population, uh, even a small population uh, coming into the Americas. We have plenty of examples of that sort of thing. I, I mentioned in my early work, uh, the example of the Limba people in South yeah. Africa uh, having uh, clearly identified Jewish ancestry. Uh, and, you know, there have been a number of examples of small uh, groups of people uh, coming into other populations uh, that are detectable genetically. There's evidence even in Iceland of a single native woman uh, migrating to Iceland uh, long before Columbus uh, and uh, her DNA is found in populations of, of Icelandic people still today, uh, you know, with with thousands of descendants. 
and that's the sort of thing that that we would expect to see. Uh, there is uh, Sephardic or, or Jewish immigration that did occur uh, coming into the Americas in the 16th, 17th centuries, uh, coming from Spain. Uh, and so basically you had in, in 1492, uh, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand had expelled Jews and Muslims from uh, Spain. Uh, and the last day they could be in Spain uh, was the day that that Columbus's ship sailed uh, to the New World. Uh, and so historically, there's a lot of evidence that there were conversos, as they're called, uh, that that had converted to Christianity and, and, and then escaped because they had to convert to Christianity even to get on the ship. Right. Uh, and, and so they came to the Americas and did clandestine uh, Judaism in the Americas and, and maintained it uh, here. So their genetic traces are in Latin American populations today, and we can date them very specifically to uh, the 16th, 17th century. And we can distinguish those uh, Jewish uh, lineages uh, from those that came uh, with later migrations uh, from England and Germany uh, that it came into Latin America, uh, European migrations that also included some uh, Jewish ancestry. And those are dated to a couple of centuries later. Uh, and we can we can find that evidence is, is there, uh, it, especially when we look at full ge genomic studies. And, you know, I should say that this essay, you know, was was likely written by Hugo Perego. Uh, and Hugo Perego uh, is, uh, he got, he just like, like I did, he got excited about the excellent engine and, and went to work uh, working on the X lineage, uh, which is a mitochondrial lineage. So his focus is on mitochondrial DNA, not whole genome studies. And so he doesn't really even consider whole genome studies to a significant degree in this essay. Uh, but interestingly, his his work on X lineage is quite uh, credible and uh, refutes very strongly the idea that the X lineage could have be a Book of Mormon population uh, because uh, he shows in his his peer-reviewed scientific research that the excellent was here uh, ten, you know, at least 10,000 more or more years before the events of the Book of Mormon. And that's taking a very broad uh, timeline for the Book of Mormon. Uh, so he got interested in the excellent Rod Meldrum also interested in the excellent but he misrepresents the science. Uh, he he basically lies about it to say that uh, because the excellent is is also found in the Middle East, uh, that he claims it originates in the Middle East and that it's a Middle Eastern DNA. But that's not true because it's also found in Africa, it's found in Europe, it's found in Asia, uh, it's found in Native Americans. Uh, and so to, to call it a Middle Eastern lineage is 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 deceptive. There's no scientist that calls it a Middle Eastern lineage, only Rod Meldrum. Uh, and, you know, so... I should mention that Angelo and I, along with Simon Southerton, recently published an article in the Journal of Northwest Anthropology called Science and Fiction, Kennewick Man slash the Ancient One in Latter-day Saint Discourse. And we looked at the use of the Kennewick Man in both the Mesoamerican and Heartland geographies and how uh, th those scholars have have misrepresented uh, the the X lineage uh, and and DNA evidence more generally 
and shown some alternative ways that indigenous Mormons have read the Book of Mormon uh, that I that don't require the Book of Mormon to be historical, that see it instead as merely spiritual, uh, or merely figurative or allegorical. Uh, and those perspectives are quite compatible with the science. Uh, and that article, interestingly, just won the May Timbimbu Perry Indigenous Studies Award from the Mormon History Association, uh, which is funded by the Red Center at BYU. And so Simon Southerton, Angelo Baca, and I each got a $500 check that ultimately came from BYU uh, to acknowledge the credibility of our research that was peer-reviewed and published in a mainstream anthropology journal. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to sum this up with a yes or no question. Should the DNA been detected if the story was true? Absolutely should have been. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's okay. Yes, thumbs up. Just so you understand, just so you understand, for those who are watching this, um, who do have loved ones still in the church or uh, neighbors, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, whatever, uh, friends, etc. When I was an apologist, uh, we just flat out rejected Dr. Murphy's claim here. And the amazing thing is, now that I... I'm open to, and I know this sounds funny, but I, th I honestly thought I was open as an apologist, but now that I am open to understanding, and I have had Dr. Simon Southerton on here talking about Kennewick Man, and now we have Dr. Murphy here. Uh, now that I'm understanding this other side with the full evidence, um, that is not a laughing matter. The science is always going to be tentative, of course. Nobody claims otherwise. That's almost a red herring in a way. That's a diversion uh, away from the real issue. Even if it is tentative, the evidence is such, it appears to me, that we can justifiably say with Dr. Murphy, yes, based on what we know right now, we should be able to find that, um, and we don't. The lambda is an ex. I love that part of your your essay because the lambda is an absolutely flawless example where a small a very small group of jews are still detectable today so yeah we we did a we we did in our book club we actually did uh we read a book on genetics and dna i'm trying to remember the name of the book that we read but we uh, several of us went and did uh the 23 and me. Yeah. 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 You want to talk a little bit about that, uh, Rebecca? And, and well, kind of what I found out I have a, I found out I have a very large, uh, comparatively large percentage of Neanderthal, right? Which I thought was really interesting. A lot of us are finding this out and my parents are very faithful. I went and told that to them and my dad said, that's not real. And my mom said, that's on your father's side. So, <laughs> 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 I mean, honey, your father was the caveman. That's your father's side. Yes, that's kind of how they said it. So yeah. it does seem to me that when, you know, our faithful relatives are kind of faced with this kind of thing, it, it does cause a little bit of cognitive dissonance because you have this whole narrative that you believe is completely historical. Now you're faced with, you know, some results and things that almost everyone else in the world seems to think, yes, this is accurate. I can find out where I came from. I can find out, you know, genetically who I am. And it does cause a little bit of pause because we were pretty secure 
in our worldview before, right? Until that DNA, dang it, that pesky DNA. And it's only going to reveal more, I feel. Well, well, the Neanderthal takes us back thousands yeah. and thousands of years before Adam was a twink yeah. in God's eyes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And, and it was amazing how accurate it was. It Like yeah. it told me, you're probably from the Mormon corridor. I mean, I mean, I sent this back to wherever their lab in New Jersey or wherever it was, and they come back with just from just my spit, and they tell me, you're probably from this area, and it traced my roots all the way back. It, it went through where we, how I came out of Africa, even. It would tell you, you know, you came out, uh, then you're, the people went here, and then they came up around into this area, and then eventually they came over here, and, and it was just, I'm just sitting here going, oh my gosh, all of that from my spit, you know? <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah, and we were comparing our stories and looking at the mixes, and it, it was amazing how accurate it was and how much it could tell you uh, about your history. You know, just the things that I knew it confirmed and then told me so many more things that I didn't know. It was just amazing. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was really a neat experience. Fine girl in the chat said, well, maybe it was also just your return address on the kit that you yeah, sent. Yeah, yeah, could have been. <laughs> Good one, fine girl. <laughs> that, that's true science, yep. Well, they... The Neanderthal uh, example is a great example of a small uh, mating event, maybe just one or two or few, uh, that has had widespread impact in human populations. Uh, so this has probably occurred, uh, you know, somewhere between 128,000 years ago. Uh, actually, they, I don't remember off the top of my head, they I think they have some more precise dating. I think there were a couple of these uh, mating events. Uh, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but they're in that range because the last Neanderthal was about 20, 28,000 years ago. And uh, they, these have led, left widespread uh, evidence of this, you know, modern human uh, having relations with a Neanderthal. Uh, and now people throughout Europe, uh, Asia, uh, the Pacific and the Americas, uh, most everyone has uh, about one, sometimes 2%, in some cases a little bit more uh, of Neanderthal ancestry. Uh, and yet hardly anybody from Africa does. And mm -hmm. so that actually helps us uh, identify where this mating event occurred. And that's, that's the part too that is kind of missing from the, the church's essay. We may not know Lehi's DNA, but we know where Lehi came from. Okay, uh, we know the community. We know that it, it, he was he was a Hebrew and that he had Hebrew ancestors, uh, and we know that they lived in uh, Jerusalem, which is uh, you know part of the Greater Middle East. Uh, and yet, there's not any lineages in the Greater Middle East that, that connect with the Book of Mormon during its uh, supposed time frame. Interesting. Yeah, Doug Vincent in our chat is saying that he has three percent Neanderthal and that RFM is Vulcan. <laughs> well that let's go to Trexmo. Let's go to the next slide. That's a good, go. segue. Yeah. That's a good segue right into good it. Here segue we go. Right there. One, more. One more. There you go. You know what's funnier than people thinking Klingons are real? Mormons thinking Nephites are real. Of course, then Spock says, well, Klingons still might be real. <laughs> they, ha they happen in the future, so we, we might still exactly. find them in the future. Yeah. Just well, right. you know, in my my newest work is developing what I call a neophyte interpretive model of the Book of Mormon. And so substituting neophytes for, neophytes for nephites. So neophyte is a term used, it's still used today, but it was used in the 19th century 
uh, to describe native converts to Christianity. Uh, and people don't realize that native people had converted to Christianity in the area of New York for 200 years before uh, Joseph Smith came around uh, in Central America for 300 years uh, before Joseph Smith was born. So uh, the, there's a long history of interacting with uh, with Christianity. And you know what the what the Christian missionaries insisted that converts do? Not just convert to Christianity, but they had to start using domesticated animals like horses and cattle and sheep and goats. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, and that they should use uh, European technologies, things like steel and glass and oh, Wait a all these anachronisms that are in the Book of Mormon uh, were being used by native converts to Christianity as part of their conversion process could because the missionaries didn't believe you could be a true Christian unless you were civilized was the term that they used. You had to be civilized uh, and that meant you raised domesticated animals, you ate wheat and barley and oats, uh, and you uh, used uh, steel and, and, and these sorts of technologies uh, and rode in wagons or rather than chariots, but uh, yeah. you know, at least close submarines either. Yeah, and you know that these neophytes are a much better model for the neophytes of the Book of Mormon. And in fact, Joseph Smith, in his treasure digging activities, uh, in both the the Ganagua Basin, which is where Palmyra is, Ganagua is uh, Ganagua is a Seneca village that was at at, uh, at Palmyra, uh, mm -hmm. and in that Ganagua Basin that includes the Seneca site called Ganondigan, uh, there was a a 17th century French attack on Ganondigan, uh, where you had uh, basically all the the warriors were out elsewhere. And so you had all the young children, uh, kind of these stripling warriors running out and fighting against uh, the the French. Uh, and they uh, left all sorts of traces of that battle in uh, around Ganondigan and in the Ganagma Valley, which is where Joseph Smith was engaged in his treasure taking activities. That included steel and horses and because uh, the, these technologies, had, had, some of it was the French, but some of it had already been incorporated into uh, Ganondigan as a community. Uh, mm -hmm. And then Joseph Smith engaging in similar work in the Susquehanna Valley, where there was this Oneida village called on Onaquaga. And Onaquaga was kind of the, the model uh, neophyte community. Uh, the missionaries were uh, focusing on that and really emphasizing how civilized they, the people were. They were even turning white uh, and they were, uh, according to the missionaries, uh, and they were uh, using cattle and sheep and goats. And they had, uh, you know, farms that looked more like European farms. They used plows. Plows were a big deal because natives had agriculture. They had corn, beans, and squash in particular throughout much of the Americas, uh, yeah. and uh, but they didn't use the plow. Uh, so the missionaries really emphasized they had to use the plow. And that's what people were doing in these places where Joseph Smith was digging for treasure. Hmm. So yeah, Neil's I want to go to the next slide because this ties into that very thing that you're talking about. Um, and Carrie, can you read that? Yeah. The ancestor of the American Indians, the evidence assembled to date, suggests that the majority of Native Americans carry largely Asian DNA. 
Scientists theorize that in an era that predated Book of Mormon accounts, a relatively small group of people migrated from Northeast Asia to the Americas by way of a land bridge that connected Siberia to Alaska. These people, scientists say, spread rapidly to fill North and South America and were likely the primary ancestors of modern American Indians. The Book of Mormon provides little direct information about cultural contact between the peoples it describes and others who may have lived nearby. Consequently, most early Latter-day Saints assumed that Near Easterners or Western Asians like Jared, Lehi, Mulek, and their companions were the first or the largest or even the only groups to settle the Americas. Building upon this assumption, critics insist that the Book of Mormon does not allow for the presence of other large populations in the Americas and that therefore Near Eastern DNA should be easily identifiable among modern native groups. And isn't this one of the issues that Roberts, B.H. Roberts found also with the languages in his Book of Mormon study? Kind of similar, kind of a, a similar situation with that. So yeah, many. This, this slide is loaded. It's got all kinds of all kinds of things. And one of the things that uh, uh, that Dr. Murphy pulled up when I when I sent this slide was that the the migrations shown on here uh, are actually animal migrations. And I I wanted to discuss that a little bit uh, because we, the, the essay focuses only on indigenous peoples DNA, but we know from from the Book of Mormon, there were actually, or, you know, they claim that there's three different migrations. You had uh, Mulek and his group from the, uh, at the time of the Babylonian captivity, you have Nephi and his group, but we also had the Jaredites who came over uh, supposedly after the Tower of Babel. And although they had that big battle that supposedly wiped them all out, so there's no DNA of any of them left because they killed each other, what didn't get wiped out or would not have gotten wiped out in that battle is the seeds and the agriculture and the animals, because we're told they brought flocks with them. We're told they brought, you know, the seeds that they were going to plant, as well as we know that that same stuff supposedly was supposed to have happened uh, with the with the Nephites. So uh, you just mentioned that, you know, uh, corn, beans and squash were the three sisters of the Native Americans prior to Columbus. And yet I don't believe we read about those anywhere in the uh, Book of Mormon, that those crops aren't mentioned. Instead, they're listing crops, like you said, oats, wheats, barley. I know they claim this uh, mini barley or some sort of barley is what they, they had, but DNA tests have been done on the animals. DNA tests have been done on, on uh, the crops. And we can tell where the domesticated crops came from. And those domesticated crops came from Europe from a time post-Columbus. Post uh, none of these crops were here prior to uh, Columbus. Only ones that were, not the only, because potatoes and other things, but the main crops uh, are what you just mentioned, as well as uh, the animals. We should, we should have seen the flocks, the sheep, the DNA should say that these domesticated animals came from uh, the Middle East, and we didn't even have flocks. There, there were no sheep in the, in, in the Americas. Can you talk a little bit about the DNA of the flora and the fauna that is also indigenous? But it's in the sealed two-thirds. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the sealed plate, so you're just wasting time. Yeah, so there's no human migration in history in which humans traveled alone. Didn't happen. 
Okay. I mean, we are, we are ecosystems, even in our own body, right? We have gut microbes. We've got uh, all sorts of bacteria that live on us and uh, survive with us that are, that are a part of, of us, right? Terry's got uh, more, more of that than the rest of us. <laughs> and, but we also always take our food sources with us, right? You know, the, the plants and animals in these mi migrations. And so, one of the things we do as anthropologists, we trace migrations by not just human DNA, but also by the animals, the bones that are left behind by their DNA. Uh, and so we can test the Book of Mormon migration events uh, multiple ways, not just with human DNA. Uh, and they all come up with the same consistent result. Uh, and that is that none of the people, plants and animals that are mentioned in the Book of Mormons come uh, migrated to the Americas from the Middle East. I will point out just as a, as a minor point of clarification that corn is mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Okay, but corn did not come from the Middle East. Okay, it came from uh, Central America. Uh, and so, I mean, they got one hit, right? They, they did say that they- <laughs> Which was um, available at the but, time of Joseph Smith. Corn was obviously a crop that he and, would have known about. Yeah. So and well that, known that it was a Native American crop, but like right, I said, right. I, I think his his mentality was was that of a, a missionary. His brother Hiram had been trained alongside other missionaries at Moore's Indian Charity School in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, so his mindset was that of the, the missionary that expected uh, these European plants and animals and technologies to be a part of the conversion process. So he couldn't have an ancient Christian population that met the standards of the day for Christianity without those plants and animals. And I think because he probably encountered them in his treasure digging activities or certainly heard about other people who had, uh, that he, he didn't seem to have a problem incorporating them into the story. There's also a possibility that Joseph Smith never thought the thing was historical to begin with. Uh, you know, that he thought it, he could have very well thought it was made up uh and and saw the the, the plates the, the, as props for for the people that that are more simple-minded than the ones that are uh deep thinkers or you know i mean it's entirely possible that that was joseph smith's sort of frame of mind the pious fraud idea as long yeah. as it gets people to believe in god from whom all good comes it wouldn't matter if it's fiction or history yeah damn yeah, yeah, Dan, in his, his first biography of Joseph Smith, that, that makes a really good case for uh, yeah. Joseph Smith's confessions are right, written right into the Book of Mormon. Itself. Right there in it. Yeah. Well, we, we uh, were looking at when you take those DNA things and you take the, the plants and the animals away, you start looking at some of the stories in the Book of Mormon, and they just wouldn't make sense to the people. Uh, Rebecca said uh, when we were driving, she said, oh, you know, when Jesus showed up and said, other flocks I have, uh, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, these guys didn't even know what sheep were. That you know, there were wild goats uh, in the mountains of, of North America, but they wouldn't know. To them, the only flocks I think turkey was turkeys were a native the animal that could have I been a flock. But other turkeys have I in our. It doesn't have the impact on things. So and and the 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 Jacob uh, with the 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 olive tree and they bring and they transplant and they cut the and they cut out the wild and they trans. There, there were no olives, there were no fruits in the Americas, there weren't domesticated fruit trees. They wouldn't have even known of that technology. So that story would have meant absolutely nothing to them from what we know of the plants and animals. Is that 
Well, there, there were domesticated fruit trees. Uh, okay. But the, and there were, I think there is a misconception of native societies that they uh, weren't very involved in agriculture. And I think that the portrayal of Lamanites in the Book of Mormon perpetuates that lie. Uh, it's basically a settler colonial lie used to justify the displacement of indigenous peoples uh, to portray them as less civilized. Uh, not only they have corn, beans, and squash, they had, you know, in, in, in the Northeast, sunflowers uh, it were a huge uh, crop, uh, tomatoes, potatoes in South and Central America, uh, chocolate. Uh, these are all native domesticates. And in fact, native people, because there weren't a lot of animals to domesticate here, uh, focus more on the plants. And so when we look at the food sources of the world today, Native American domesticated plants are the overrepresented in the world uh, food diet today uh, because uh, they invested so much in, in domesticating so many different uh, plants and uh, rather than animals. Think of were, it, right? yeah. Interesting. Right. And, and the animals, there were turkeys, uh, and dogs that were domesticated dogs were uh, often eaten. And in fact, uh, interesting thing about dogs, dogs were eaten in, by native people and raised in, you could call them flocks. They, I mean, they, they, were, they were raised in groups of dogs here in the Pacific Northwest. They had island, dog islands. Uh, you're, and, you're breaking Rebecca's heart right now when you're and, eating dogs. <laughs> just, and, just don't tell her they ate cats. She'd be at the end. In, in New York. <laughs> the broadcast. Uh, you said that. I'm sorry. In, in New York, there were uh, the, the Seneca had a, a, a white dog sacrifice that a lot of the missionaries were really interested in because they thought it was an example of kind of animal sacrifices, the, the Jewish scapegoat. Uh, and so the missionaries... Uh, in the 18th and 19th century were really focused on this white dog sacrifice uh, as, as a potential scapegoat. Well, the idea that it was a scapegoat uh, came about in Seneca circles because of Christian conversion. And so what was a, a, a Seneca, Seneca Christians uh, started to take this older ceremony that involved eating dogs uh, and uh, using their skin as offerings uh, to the holder of the heavens, uh, then that became a, a, a way of uh, transmitting confession, a confession of sins and transmitting those sins up to, to the sky, to the holder of heavens. It became a scapegoat type thing. Well, that didn't happen until the 1820s. And Joseph Smith incorporates that into his worldview. He actually even... Uh, participated in sacrificing a white dog in his treasure hunting activities yeah. in the Susquehanna yeah. Valley. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, kind of fascinating. So yeah. my understanding, I, I read uh, Guns, Germs, and Stills. It's been several years ago. seems to me that they said there were four domesticated animals. I think it was guinea pigs, dogs, turkeys, and llamas. Um, and alpacas, yeah. Alpacas, yeah, kind of the same family there. So. Yeah, and that's really all the domesticated animals they had, which is why they never really developed the will because they didn't have draft animals or any way to pull anything. Um, yeah, I, I'd push back on Jared Diamond a little bit, being here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, with, I worked closely with Coast Salish Nations for the last 20 years on, on domesticated uh, marine animals. Uh, oh, marine and, animals. And so, yeah, I mean, they had clam gardens here. Uh, salmon really... Uh, they're not entirely domesticated, but they're pretty close to it. I mean, uh, they certainly did hatchery-like activity 
uh, prior to Europeans coming and transplanting uh, salmon from one stream to another, uh, transplanting the eggs. These, this kind of almost domestication of, of, of fish uh, was occurring here uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So I think Jared Diamond, it, it, I used this book, so I, I think it's a pretty good book. Yeah, it's a good uh, book. But, it's it's kind of old, a little dated. But he too. also, yeah, he also uh, is is not as well informed about actual native uh, practices. And you know, I, I spent twenty years doing traditional foods in native communities. So I, I've I got to ask you, Doctor Murphy, crabs and lobster myself. Yeah, well, you know, crabs certainly we worked with a lot here. Uh, not so much lobsters. That's more on the other. The, the and, land. Every ex Mormon wants to know where tapirs domesticated were to <laughs> no they were not and they certainly weren't attached to a chariot <laughs> we have pictures of dan peterson riding one however so there is that so i'm just saying well, look, so so uh the, the 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 uh that previous slide they talked about the migration from siberia do you want to talk a little bit about that and th this is where we know that the majority of the dna came from uh, through, you know, through the land bridge, which was amazing. I remember reading about that in like third grade and my parents telling me, no, 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 that's not where they came from. They came from Jerusalem. And I remember thinking, oh, that's not true. And then as I started going down my rabbit hole, you know, I, I just, it, it was amazing how every scientific book, the linguistics, the anthropology, the migrations, the biologists, all of it supported this, you know, the, of, of how they had come, when they came. You want to talk a little bit about where they came from and how they got here? Yeah, so here I'm. I want to push back against Hugo Perego that he's not. He's not an anthropologist. I'm an anthropologist, and I work work as part of a team of anthropologists here in the Northwest, looking at, at migration routes. Uh, and it, it's it's no longer the predominant view in 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 anthropology that people came across a land bridge and through an ice-free corridor. That's an older view of a previous generation of anthropologists. Uh, and so Hugo Perego is just really out of date in terms of his analysis. And he shouldn't be because the DNA evidence is one of the key uh, evidences that has changed the paradigm that anthropologists are using today uh, because DNA pushed back the timing of the entry into the Americas well past 10 to 12,000 years ago. Well, that ice-free corridor was only available uh, at, until, or that ice-free, excuse me, the ice-free corridor was not available prior to 12,000 years ago. Uh, and so uh, DNA shows that Native people were here, as they've said, since time immemorial, uh, maybe 20, in some cases, some evidence, maybe 20, 30,000 years ago. Uh, and the that's not the only evidence. There are a lot of archaeological sites that show uh, that the first uh, native people to arrive here participated in maritime cultures. They had things like fish hooks and ropes and, and nets, and uh, they had maritime technologies. Uh, and so the my personal take, uh, based on the current evidence, is that the, the first migrants came by water. Uh, and I think it's important, though, to so that supports the Book of Mormon, right? No, 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 no because they came by water from uh, Northeast Alaska. Asia. 
20,000 years ago or whatever yeah. uh, from Northeast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah from from the Jeremiah's great, 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 great grandfathers were probably in there. Somewhere. In there yeah. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, probably from Siberia or areas around that, that yeah. there. Uh, and those, the, those populations were actually quite diverse before they came over. And I think that's really important. The genetics show that the X lineage uh, being widespread around, around the world, uh, showing some of that diversity. And so the people that, that came across, they did go through a, a bottleneck event in the sense that they, they lost some of that genetic diversity. So they have only a small subset of the genetic diversity that was in Asia, but it's still a rather diverse uh, group. And Kennewick man, for example, has the, the oldest evidence of the X2A lineage that we've ever found. Uh, and, you know, showing that that diversity was there from the beginning. And, and how old was Kennewick man? Uh, 9,000 years old. 9, yeah, so I shouldn't say very beginning because it, it could have been, it, you know, X2A could have come a, a little bit later than some of those first migrations. There's, there's some evidence, it's still very controversial, but there's some evidence that uh, native, that maybe even Neanderthals or some, some sort of uh, archaic human made it here 130,000 years ago. There's some evidence from San Diego of Macedon bones that have been uh, been busted up in ways that look very similar to butchering. Uh, and that's some of the work that this group I'm involved with in, in the Pacific Northwest is we're looking at all the Macedon uh, bones that we can get uh, here in this area, uh, doing a very careful analysis of them. Uh, and, and a lot of anthropologists are doing this now. And what we're finding, we're pushing those dates back further and further. And for those that are curious about kind of the up-to-date point of view, I would recommend uh, the book by Paulette Steves, uh, a Cree uh, archaeologist called An Indigenous Paleolithic. Uh, and she looks at the, the strong archaeological evidence uh, as well as DNA evidence that native people were here before they could have come through that ice-free corridor from the land bridge. Uh, so when, when the church says tentative, uh, tentative science, that the science is actually pushing the dates way further away from a Book of Mormon people, saying it can't possibly have been, uh, you know, uh, 600 BC to 400 AD. These people were here long before that. Yeah, since time immemorial is a kind of fair way to say it. And I, I should acknowledge, too, that Native people have their own stories, and some of them are migration stories, okay? But there are other stories of saying we came from the land, uh, and we came from this place. And the Seneca, for example, where the Book of Mormon came from, they say they came from uh, a hill uh, near uh, Conondagua Lake. Uh, and, uh, you know, that may have been a reason joseph smith was interested in hills around conondagua lake although the hill they they emphasize is not not hill Camorra, it's too further south uh but you know native people do have their own stories that should be given uh credence as well it's certainly uh as, as valid as uh as as any account in the bible for example Let, let's go let's go to slide eight carrie um Rebecca, can you read that? This is another Trex we'll note. We'll see, won't we? Yeah. <laughs> That's Everything seven, can be right? seen we through the eyes of Trex note. Nope, the next one. Next one, Gary. We've seen this one, haven't we? Yeah, we've already seen yeah. that one, yep. Oh, yes. This is one of my favorite Trexmos. He says, we didn't meet others, and we didn't come from far across the sea. I'm so tired of this, I'll just say narrative. 
<laughs> BS narrative. BS narrative. BS narrative. That's right. So <laughs> that takes that takes us to the to the next slide. Um, oh, says Captain Kirk. And, no. and Rebecca, can you read that one? Uh, th this one is one that uh, they I, I think we just read about. You know, were we alone? Were you know we talk about they were among the principal ancestors and how they changed it, but. The question comes up, were the Book of Mormon people alone? And I think it said previously in the essay that some older people, they assumed that, that that's what it meant. Uh, you want right. to go ahead and, and read that? Yeah, that was another moment reading the essay where we just said, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, we, some people may have misunderstood this. Yeah. Um, so it says, were the Book of Mormon people alone? The Book of Mormon itself, however, does not claim that the peoples it described were either the predominant or the exclusive inhabitants of the lands they occupied. In fact, cultural and demographic clues in its text hint at the presence of other groups. At April 1929 General Conference, President Anthony W. Ivins of the First Presidency cautioned, and I have to say, this is a little known <laughs> apostle or general authority. They had to dig really deep to find this quote. He cautioned, we must be careful in the conclusions that we reach. The Book of Mormon does not tell us that there was no one here before them, the people that it's describing, and it does not tell us that people didn't come after. I pulled I pulled the next slide. Go to the next slide. I pulled the next slide right out of the book uh, that was uh, uh, by Dr. Murphy. Uh, do you want to respond to that? Well, it, there's different ways to respond to it. So in one sense, if if uh, migrants came from the Middle East at the time, it, during the time frames proposed in the Book of Mormon, they most certainly wouldn't have been alone. There would have been millions of people here. OK, uh, but uh, if we take the text, what does the text say? The text is an ideology or, or an origin story for all of the Americas. Uh, and to, to emphasize that, there are various passages in the Book of Mormon, uh, and I pointed to a couple of them uh, that the essay doesn't even attempt to address. And that is uh, in Ether, when the Lord commands the party of Jared to gather thy flocks, both male and female of every kind, and also the seed of the earth of every kind, and go forth into the wilderness, yea, into that quarter where never had man been. Uh, and then Lehi's prophetic claim that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. Uh, or that as long as they shall keep his commandments, there shall be none to molest them. Uh, and so these these passages aren't even addressed. I know there's some apologetics that try to say, oh, well, maybe that, that quarter was in Asia rather than, than the Americas, but there were people there too. So it's still wrong. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the one uh, of Lehi, they say, well, maybe they were sinful. Uh, and I, that's one thing that talk about irritating getting irritating is this whole idea of the narrative of the book of mormon that native people lost their right to the sovereignty of this land uh because they weren't righteous while well, were the conquistadors righteous i mean uh do they deserve uh <laughs> the conquest and sovereignty of this land i mean the the whole narrative unfortunately is a way for settler colonialists to justify their presence on stolen land the land never belonged to uh, the settlers in the first place and the only way it was taken was in ways that were egregiously wrong by the the basic simple moralities of christianity and every other world religion uh, and it 
it was wrong. And I think that my think is that thinking is that Joseph Smith was actually troubled by this, as were many people. Many theologians were troubled by this. And so one of the ways that they tried to justify it was by imagining that that the native people around them were uncivilized and that there had once been a civilized nation here because there was abundant evidence of civilization uh, everywhere you looked. Uh, and so they said, well, there was an ancient civilized nation that that degenerated and lost their sovereignty, lost their right to the land. Uh, and, and then uh, that allowed Europeans to come here and take this land away. Well, it's better explained by disease and warfare and, and technology uh, than it is by morality. And that's where Jared Diamond's book is, is quite helpful to, to think about. Uh, but it the, the Book of Mormon narrative really denigrates native cultures, which were moral on their own terms. Uh, and certainly uh, during the conquest behaved far better than uh, than our European ancestors. Yeah. No. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Nope. So, yeah. Great. Uh, and, and so basically they, they did not come into an empty land, but the Book of Mormon tells us that it was. And I think all of us learned that growing up. I, I know I heard, oh, yeah, it, it was saved for the righteous people. There was no other people here. They came, they colonized it. And we, we know from the genetics uh, and and the anthropology and everything else that they'd been here for thousands and thousands of years prior, these these other groups. It was large populations even. I, I mean, I'm here in Mexico, had millions of people in what was Mexico City um, at, during Alone. those times. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was a huge population. That, uh, so that brings well, up the next Let me point out that the largest population centers in North America until 1776 were all native. They're all native communities. They were larger than New York City, larger than Philadelphia, larger than Boston. Uh, and yet that's totally ignored. That, that, I'm glad you, we took a trip down to uh, New Mexico. Um, yeah, we went to Chaco. Uh, we went to, uh, and a couple months before that, we went to Albuquerque. Had I, I, I grew up here. I grew up in, the, in Utah. I had no idea that the oldest cities were Albuquerque was has some of the oldest buildings in America uh, are, are colonial uh, Spanish buildings that were there from the 1700s. And yet you never learn anything about that. And and then you have Chaco over there. That's just an incredible civilization. Oh, oh just Maybe. incredible to go through. No, I've never even heard of Chaco. And what an incredible civilization is. Uh, we took what a, about a month ago, we went down there and just incredible. Yeah. And I, I never learned about Chaco. I never knew about the peoples that were here who'd been here for thousands of years. Yeah, that's uh, all criminal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely never taught that. Yeah, and have you heard of Cahokia? No. Yeah, Cahokia. Yeah. Cahokia is uh, Monk's Mound's largest mound in North America, and it's east of St. Louis in what was a large city, uh, larger than London at 1000 AD. Uh, and, you know, it's part of a very large mound building culture that spread across the Mississippi and southeast and valleys and, and up into uh, the Susquehanna and uh, New York areas. Uh, and uh, the, in fact, these mounds were still being built while Joseph Smith was, was alive. 
David Cusick, who's a Tuscarora author who wrote a book called Sketches of the Ancient History of uh, Six Nations, that I think Joseph Smith borrowed a lot of the stories in the Book of Mormon from. Well, he writes about visiting one of the mounds in 1800 in the Susquehanna Valley uh, in a town called Sydney today. Uh, and he describes the process that they're built uh, and, and, and Iroquois people uh, building them. Tuscarora are one of the six nations of the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee uh, people. Yeah. Uh, but, I, I, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So mound building it, it never disappeared. Uh, and in fact, native people still build mounds today. Uh, we have a serpent mound in Seattle uh, in Discovery Park. Uh, the Choctaw Nation, their headquarters got mounds. Uh, they, they never stopped building their mounds. Uh, but there's this mythology that developed and, you know, people like Rod Meldrum and the Heartland Group perpetuate this mound builder mythology that these ancient nations disappeared. They didn't disappear. They're still here and they're still building mounds. They, they had to be, but they, in their theology, it had to be white people who built these mounds because natives right. could not have possibly yeah. developed civilizations that, yeah. that large, which, which plays into that. So that sounds racist to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, so I see a lot of comments in the in the comments about Mesa Verde. And oh, yeah, yeah that's an incredible. Uh, yeah. yeah, we, we, we went, went to both Mesa Verde and then to Chaco. To yeah. yeah. And Beautiful. both are just such impressive uh, yeah, civilizations. Well, it's incredible to go see those. That, that Hopi Navajo land is some of my favorite. It's just fabulous. Man. Yeah. Hot, too. So go in the right month. <laughs> Carrie, can you pull up the next slide? You bet. So, uh, yeah, this one didn't quite translate correctly either, but it says nothing is known about the extent of intermarriage and genetic mixing between Book of Mormon peoples or their descendants and other inhabitants of the Americas, though some mix mixing appears evident even during the period covered by the book's text. What seems clear is that the DNA of Book of Mormon peoples likely represented only a fraction of all DNA in ancient America. Finding and clearly identifying their DNA today may be, may be asking more of the science of population genetics than it is capable of providing. There's the key right there. See, can't Again, go to we're science. calling the science into question, <laughs> which that, was upsetting us. So native, did oh, did they intermix and is it asking too much of genetics to, to find these people? Tell that, that, uh, to that Native American woman who migrated to Iceland and left descendants? Or how about the Native people that migrated to Polynesia uh, in the 12th century and left descendants? Uh, we, we have evidence of those migrations uh, today uh, in, in DNA. Uh, we also have other evidence of things like the sweet potato, for example. Uh, and so we have archaeological and, and botanical evidence that support uh, some of these migrations of native people. And I, I emphasize the migrations of native people because again, our stereotypes are of native people is that uh, somehow they were un this uncivilized Lamanite sort of thing. Well, they were traveling and, and we found evidence of native travels. Good so why point. can't we find Middle Eastern or Middle Eastern DNA coming into the Americas? We most definitely would if the, if, if there, even if let's say it was a small population but that population had millions of descendants and that's kind of the key or even thousands of descendants we would find it if that popu if a small population came in and this is maybe what happened with the vikings okay uh is that the vikings uh don't appear to have uh mated with the native americans uh there's no evidence 
that they did, except for this native woman who went uh, back to, to Iceland, probably with the Vikings. Uh, and uh, that's the, the evidence we have of native and Viking intermarriage is actually the evidence is there. So, you know, we find the Vikings probably didn't intermarry or if they did it, very few of them did so and they didn't have descendants. But the, the Book of Mormon describes a scenario in which you had a, a, a small group, supposedly, as the as the apologists interpret it now, a small group that then intermixes with this larger population, but they have thousands of descendants. With those thousands of descendants, you're going to maintain the genetic uh, origins uh, because they're going to they're going to be breeding with each other, having children with each other, uh, and then they're going to pass on uh, more and more of that genetic heritage. Uh, and, and certainly, if you got millions of descendants like that Neanderthal that that found a sexy well, the, the numbers in the end wars add up to many, many, many hundreds of thousands, if not close to millions as well. Now, the interesting thing is the story says that the Nephites were completely destroyed and only the Lamanites remained. But throughout the text of the Book of Mormon, you always do have the the crossover with Lamanites mm -hmm. to Nephites and Nephites to Lamanites and all. So to say that the entire nation was destroyed is not to say the science can't find it because it would have been in all sides. Is that, is oh, that, oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. And in fact, every, every lineage that's provided in the book of Mormon traces back to the near East. There's not a single one that traces elsewhere. Uh, none. Uh, and that includes Lamanites as well as Nephites. Uh, that includes the, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And right. so all, even though there are some different groups, there's not a single one that comes from elsewhere, not a single lineage ever mentioned that came from elsewhere. And do you think that if Nephites came in, as some of these apologists have suggested, and I, I misspoke earlier when I said uh, that it was, uh, or I said it was, I should have said it was Brian Hales, who has a recent article in the Interpreter on this teeny tiny migration. Uh, but anyway, if uh, this, uh, now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, what was I saying? Uh, this small, this small migration that came in the Nephites, the Lamanites, if we want to, you know, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I know what I was saying. They now. didn't intermix with others. They, they maintained their line. They did break off into the Lamanites and the Nephites, but we know the Nephites supposedly didn't interbreed with, because they were dark skinned, so they wouldn't intermix. And so they had thou each of them had thousands of descendants who certainly would have intermixed with the other peoples that were here. They're, they're, they're all the same lineage anyway. Okay. That, that, that line had been blown up to where it was thousands of hundreds of thousands hundreds of individuals, of according yeah. to the book. That couldn't and, possibly have gone undetected. I wouldn't yeah, say. and this occurred over a thousand year period, keep in yeah. mind. So if, if your descendant populations are growing for a thousand years, uh, and you're not going to lose that. That's, there's no way you're going to lose that genetic. You can't. Uh, and then Hagath disappeared and they speculate that's the origin of the polynesians so that's spreading and yet they, their genetics don't come from jerusalem either no, no they don't uh, and simon Silverton um, informed me of that so, so anyway I, what i was saying earlier is that if this small group of say nephites took over like a mayan city or something 
uh, and became the elites of the city, as some apologists have proposed, uh, then the Book of Mormon would mention those people, right? Because take the Popol Vuh, uh, which is a Quiche Maya text that describes a Nahua group that comes into Maya territory and they take over uh, another population. And right. there, there are repeated references to uh, the, the nations that they conquered. Uh, and, you know, so, and, and in fact, the, the Popol Vuh is used as a, as a model text uh, for, the, for the Book of Mormon. Uh, and yet it uh, provides ample evidence that a, a small population coming into a new area and conquering people are going to mention the, those other people and are going to acknowledge their their heritage and their lineages as well, not just all tracing back to uh, to to the Nahua in the case of, of the Popol Wu. And I, I should say I published an article in the last summer's Journal of Mormon History on on, on the Popol Wu and looking at it within the 16th century context and looking at why why native why there were some uh, biblical parallels that it, it got incorporated into uh, the Pope of Wu and they were not intended by the, the the people who made those incorporations into an older Maya, Mayan mythology or Mayan uh, history even because some of it's historical but what they were doing was trying to make comparisons to say Sinai uh, we had a Sinai-like event in our history. We had a revelation from our God. Uh, and so it, they're not saying that they came from Sinai. They're saying that we've had similar things to what you see in the Bible. And so what they were trying to do was validate their own sacred narratives vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Bible. Uh, and and that's how those biblical parallels get into it. And this happens all over Native uh, cultures. And so Mormon apologists will go and say, oh, well, there's uh, uh, some Jewish element here, there. Uh, there's some biblical, there's a discussion of a flood, uh, that there is a Tower of Babel or whatever. Well, those are were incorporated as a way of uh, saying, we have our own scriptures, we have our own sacred narratives, uh, and they're just as valid as yours. Hmm. Right, right. Good point. Yeah. Gary, can you pull up the next slide? It's pretty wordy. I hope you can read it. So the next the next question I'll, I'll read it. is can scientists determine when DNA mixing would have occurred? You want to read this this is the church's sure you know point of view. I'm gonna, I'm gonna point my I'm gonna point my face down so nobody can look up my nose. <laughs> At the present time, scientific consensus holds that the vast majority of the Native Americans belonged to sub-branches of the Y chromosome haplogroups C and Q, and the mitochondrial DNA haplogroups A, B, C, D, and X, all of which appear to have come to the Americas via migrations from East Asia. Ongoing studies continue to provide new insights that both challenge and confirm previous conclusions. For example, yeah, this sounds like Hugo Perigo, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, sorry. That's not in the S, that's not in the slide, but for example, a 2014 study indicates that as much as one third of Native American DNA may have originated anciently in Europe or West Asia. From this evidence, scientists conclude that some Europeans 
or West Asians migrated eastward across Asia, mixing with a group that eventually migrated to the Americas millennia before the events described in the Book of Mormon. Additional DNA markers from Europe and West Asia and Africa exist in the DNA of modern native populations, but it is difficult to determine whether they are the result of migrations that predated Columbus, such as those described in the Book of Mormon, or whether they stem from genetic mixing that occurred after the European conquest. This is due in part to the fact that the molecular clock used by scientists to date why chromosome and mitochondrial DNA markers is not sufficiently sensitive to pinpoint the I'm hearing an echo. Pinpoint the timing of migrations that occurred as recently as a few hundred or even a few thousand years ago. Moreover, no molecular clock is currently available for complete genes. Can you address that? Is is that true? You talked a little bit earlier about how you could tell exactly when the, you know the Jewish populations came over. Um, what what's your take on that? I think, yeah, this does echo Ugo Prego because his specialty is in mitochondrial DNA. He's not as up to date on the the work with the full genome. Uh, and and I'm trying to figure out what does he mean? There's no there there's no molecular clock. He's he's probably using molecular clock in a very narrow sense of the word. There is a, a relative form of dating with the full chromosome uh, that basically it's called tract analysis that basically when when we uh when we pass on our our uh chromosomes uh from from ourselves to our children or that we get from our parents we don't get the chromosomes intact what we get is the chromosomes uh recombine in the the process of uh what we call it recombination uh, and the so they the the chromosomes recombine and every time they recombine uh they the segments of dna that came from your ancestors get smaller uh so that provides a relative way of dating uh the uh the the full chromosome and how how long it was passed on so if you have a, a, an introduction of a new lineage uh you can look at how long those tracks are to see when that 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 lineage was introduced. Uh, and so that's what's been done with the studies of Latin Americans and uh, Sephardic ancestry or Jewish ancestry uh, from, from the area of Spain. Uh, and there, what they find is that that corresponds exactly with non-Jewish migration from Spain as well. So it, it provides a relative uh, form of dating showing that, that those uh, Jewish populations that came to the Americas came at the same time the Spanish did and the Portuguese did uh, and through that relative form of dating. The same, yeah, the same technique has is, is been used in these studies of uh, Polynesians with Native American DNA uh, and, and showing about a 12th 
12th century. So it, there's actually different influxes of Native American DNA into Polynesian populations. So one of those is an, an ancient pre-Columbian one about the 12th century. And the other correlates strongly with uh, the, the French and the English introduction that your and Spanish introductions uh, into Polynesia uh, and showing basically through that relative form of dating uh, you, maybe you don't call it a molecular clock, but it's still a way of dating the, when these events occur. Uh, yeah. And yeah. and so there are there are actually quite robust. And in fact, these are these these forms of dating are more robust than the molecular clock that we use for mitochondrial DNA or the X chromosome. I mean, the Y chromosome, uh, the male inheritance. Uh, the reason they're more precise is because you can base them on on large large numbers. So when we're looking at the full genome. We're, we're looking at, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, genetic markers. Uh, and so we can do statistical analyses and, and use those statistical analyses to, to separate out their significance. Uh, and, and, and that's much more difficult to do with, uh, say, mitochondrial DNA. So it, that uh, full genome analysis is much more robust. And I will add one more example of that, and that example is in the study of uh, Kennewick man or the ancient one's DNA. Uh, so they didn't just trace his uh, mitochondrial DNA, which, as I said earlier, is X2A, but they also did his full genome. So if any of his ancestors uh, had recently come from, from Europe or the Middle East, uh, that would have been evident, and it wasn't. Uh, in fact, all of his ancestors came uh, from the area around uh, around Siberia. And that's important because there's been some debate is because uh, the X lineages that are found in Asia are distantly related to X2A, okay? Uh, and so if they're distantly related to X2A, is it possible then that as this essay suggests, there was this ancient migration. Yeah, there was an ancient migration. Uh, it wasn't a recent one. That's basically what this shows is that uh, the, by looking at the full uh, chromosome, we don't see recent migrants from Europe in uh, the Kennewick man's DNA. Instead, what we find are those that- that Ancient ones. That are in, yeah, that are in, yeah. found around uh, Asia. And so the, the closest yeah. relatives to Kennewick man are all Native Americans. Uh, and then the next closest one. Oh, ironic. Uh, and so, it, you know, there was a big deal made out of it because a couple of, uh, well, one in particular, one archaeologist in particular who happens to be a colleague of mine, Jim Chatters, made the, the foolish statement uh, that the, 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 skull, the skull looked a little Caucasian. Uh, or Caucasoid is the term he used, and then uh, the press ran away with that, calling it Caucasian, which is not the same thing. Caucasoid is a very specific term used by uh, forensic anthropologists uh, that it doesn't mean the same thing as Caucasian. But it's it, it, people interpreted it that way, uh, and 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 so people thought Kennewick man was a white man. Uh, we don't know the color of his skin, uh, but I. Do we do know that native people had variable skin colors? Uh, that they range from rather light to rather dark, uh, and that that those gradients of skin colors uh, get darker towards the uh, 
towards the equator, which shows that native people have been here for a very, very long time because mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. skin color uh, changes are, you know, basically responses to climate that take a long time to happen. You, yeah. you want to pull up the, the next Trexmo, Gary? Yeah. You bet. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. I'm I'm really glad. Oh, this is important. <laughs> this is critical. You this is one of Rebecca's them. favorites. This is one of my very favorite ones. <laughs> you want to read, read that one? You can yeah. read it, Landon. Yeah, go. You're going to read it? No, I said you read it, Landon. Oh, okay. His name is Zelf, Captain. He was a white Lamanite and a warrior and chieftain under the great prophet Omen Dagus. Now you're just now making you're shit up, Spock. Shit up, Spock. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. uh, you, you actually just addressed this. There were varying skin tones, but it it, it uh, had nothing to do with righteousness, but it had more to do with, uh, what is it, latitude? Latitude uh, was what would determine skin color. Well, yeah, uh, dark skin protects against certain types of skin cancers and, uh, and lighter skin uh, provides some protection against cold. It also provides uh, some... It helps you to process vitamin D and to process uh, basically some other amino acids that I'm blanking on the name of. But uh, I think something to point out on that that Zelf story that is is deeply problematic. You think it if 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 a native person came into your cemetery and dug up your ancestors. And then proclaim that they were, them, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, like a dark-skinned uh, person like them or whatever. You know, I mean, come on, uh, how ridiculous is this? It, it's deeply, deeply offensive and and illegal, right? Illegal. I mean, this totally. is grave yeah. robbery uh, yeah. that Joseph Smith is engaged in, and in fact. The whole treasure-seeking endeavor that that he is engaged in is a form of grave robbery, and I write a lot about this in my forthcoming book. I uh, I've actually identified a lot of these treasures he was looking for in the Susquehanna Valley. There were Oneida and Mohawks coming there looking for those same treasures. Uh, they were treasures that they buried uh, in 1778 uh, when they were leaving uh, when Clinton the Sullivan campaign was coming in, uh, and they. They, they these treasures belong to people yeah yeah and joseph smith and, and his family and, and others were trying to dig up these na native treasures and rob the native people from uh, their possessions that they had uh hidden uh, as refugees in war yeah well i hadn't heard that that's uh it's well that's my new book you got to read it okay well <laughs> we will. We will I, definitely be looking at that. We we read Dan Vogel and we read Dr. Thomas Murphy. That's right. <laughs> we're we're getting the top of the hour, so I'm I'm going to kind of consolidate the last couple of slides. We don't need to necessarily show them, Carrie. Um, okay. Tom, Tom, I was hoping you could in the in the essay they talk about three reasons why we're not picking up the DNA: the founder effect, population bottleneck, and genetic drift. And they use those as kind of excuses as why we're not picking up the DNA uh, of of the Nephite Lamanite people. Can you address, is there any validity to that? Is there any possibility that any of those would make that genetic uh, marks disappear? You know, would it make just a small piece of it disappear or would the whole genome basically disappear for those, for those people? And I may right, be so using those, genome those are, wrongly there, but. 
those are all what in say an introductory biological biological anthropology course we call the mechanisms of evolution that is those are ways that changes in populations occur over time okay so they're all they're all valid biological principles and well-known biological principles that you'll see in basically every introductory biological biology or biological anthropology class uh but so they are real principles uh, and they would have absolutely been necessary if a population had disappeared. Okay, something like that would have almost definitely have, had to have happened. Uh, and uh, the the problem with using them in the case of the of the Book of Mormon is that uh, a these are not the types of scenarios that would would happen with that large population growth that I was talking about earlier. Uh, to use it to example of the, the founder effect, the, the reason that, say, the mitochondrial lineages that we find in Native America, there's only five lineages and there's more than a dozen uh, in a couple dozen in Asia, uh, is that's a founder effect because a subset of the of Asian populations uh, probably came via boat uh, to the Americas uh, and they, the people that didn't come, didn't transport their, their DNA. So the DNA in Native Americans represents only a subset of a Native American populations. Uh, did that also happen in the, in the, with Lehi's party? It most definitely would have, right? There, what we would see if there was a founder founding event like described in the Book of Mormon, it would not be representative of all the DNA types we see in the Middle East. What it would be is representative of a select few. Okay, uh, and but it would still be representative of, of, of that few, and we don't even find the few. Okay, uh, mm. and the you know basically take genetic drift for example. Genetic drift is accidental changes uh, in a in a population frequency. Let's say a a a, uh, a group of animals. Uh, are on one side of uh, a river that serves as a barrier and another group of mammals is on the other side, okay? And there's a big landslide that wipes out one side of the river and doesn't wipe out the other side. What you're gonna get is an accidental effect on the gene, on the, on the, the genetic diversity. Uh, if just a couple more of uh, one lineage happened to be on this side of the river, then now in subsequent populations, that lineage is going to be more frequent. Uh, but the really important thing about genetic drift is this is these, these, these are random events and random events are random. Okay. And in the Book of Mormon, what is required is not random, but the same event happening over and over and over and over and over and over and over again with oh, every type of so the mitochondrial DNA, the Y chromosome DNA, uh, all the the thousands of uh, hundreds of thousands of markers across the the genome, uh, all our microbiome, all of the animals that came with all the lice in our hair, all all of them, uh, all the animals that supposedly came with us, every one of those having the exact same genetic drift. No way. No. no way. The exact same random event does not happen in every single uh, population. It's not at that point. It's BS. So they're they're basically using scientific principles to make it sound as if it's a reasonable conclusion that it could disappear, 
but it almost sounds like they're doing it to intentionally fool us or tell us this. These are the things that could have made it happen, even though they know fully well that it really would not have made that happen. There's no way it would have completely disappeared. Yeah, I think it's a smokescreen. Yeah. Interesting. And they called the science tentative. If you remember, there was a great comment back on the thread where they said the science is tentative, but now we're going to tell you exactly how it fits our narrative. So you can. Yeah, it was a great, it was Daisy. I think that made the comment. I thought that was really good. And you know, why not, why can't the book of Mormon be tentative? Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Well, it has to be. be. Yeah. <laughs> was right. Two thirds of it still have yet to come forth. Right. I mean, there are actually quite a few passages in the book of Mormon that suggest that it's an incomplete record that, uh, right. They did a lot of things weren't written down uh, yeah. that uh, they couldn't tell everybody's perspective. In fact, even who says criticizes the Mormon is the standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Very good criticizes point. the Nephites for not keeping the the, the, the whole story. Right? Record, so yeah. why not say the Book of Mormon is tentative? Good. <laughs> I like it. Okay, right here on the backyard, Professor. The first program we are going to say the Book of Mormon is what is tentative. Okay, there, there we, we go. go. <laughs> it's on record. No, that's a great point. And we can set the matter closed. There's and there's textual evidence to support it. Yeah, yeah, truly. Well, there's doctrinal evidence that support it. Yeah. As far as as far as their brethren go, they can't possibly say it's complete. <laughs> well, they, it, yeah, the reason that they don't don't go that way is that we want to make it about Joseph Smith's prophetic ability, right? That somehow he has to produce history to be a prophet. Well, no other prophet produced history, so why should he? Right. Very excellent point, uh, too. Uh, yeah. I love Mo Mosiah's uh, comment there. Uh, another tentative of Jesus Christ. <laughs> there are so many. <laughs> Karen, let's pull up the last slide. Let's go to the conclusion. This is I the conclusion from the essay. Right. Yeah, jump to the last one there. And Rebecca, you want to you want to read the conclusion, and uh, then we'll close uh, out. No, I'm not going to be able to. Sorry. Yes, no, no. <laughs> I'm on a very small computer right now, so I'm kind of leaning <laughs> in. Read. So, much as critics and defenders of the Book of Mormon would like to use DNA studies to support their views, the evidence is simply inconclusive. Nothing is known about the DNA of the Book of Mormon peoples. Even if such information were known, processes such as population bottleneck, genetic drift, and post-Columbian immigration from West Eurasia make it unlikely that their DNA could be detected today. As Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles observed, it is our position that secular evidence can neither prove nor disprove the authenticity of, of the book of Mormon brethren. Now, I will simply say I entirely agree with him. However, notice how they keep miswording this whole thing. It has nothing to do with proving or disproving anything. We have to find out what is most probable, and that the church will not go to. Well, science is never going to be able to tell us whether the Book of Mormon is divinely authenticated. Okay. Right it, it, it's divinity we can't answer, but we can right. address its historicity. Uh, yes. And it clearly is not a history. And and it's the science is definitive on that regard. It's not it's not tentative. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, 
I, I, I think I, I would wish this is what I wish that the DNA essay ended with the statement that President Nelson has recently said, in fact, said to an audience of Native Americans when he made a big donation to a museum in, in Oklahoma. He I says the Book of Mormon is, is not history. It's not a history textbook. Now I'm paraphrasing. He said this before to mission presidents. Uh, right. It's not history. It's not a history. It's not a history textbook. Uh, interestingly, the Native Americans that he made that big donation to gave the money back. Wow. He did what now? He did gave the money back. They gave the money back. <laughs> Wow, even with that, even with him confessing that it's not a history, he's not gone far enough. If, if Mormons yeah. want to repair their relationships with Native Americans, they need to they need to very clearly say it is, is absolutely not history uh, and that your histories are valid on their own terms. On their own terms, not within the Book of Mormon context that we have stamped on you. Yeah, yes, sir. And, and yep. that's the point. I think you were saying that you were uh, that you and Angela were trying to go to is is that uh, Native Americans need to be able to define their history on their terms, and not on uh, the terms of of a church with a book that is not historical or 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 accurate. And let, let me ask you this question in closing. If the Lamanites and the Nephites did not exist, would you be able to detect that with the DNA? If they did not exist. Well, I mean, that would be exactly what we see. It, it, exactly. Yes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> there you go. And, That's and right. Let, let me have one closing comment. Let's suppose you have a new neighbor move in, right? Your new neighbor comes over and uh, and tells you where they came from, uh, and you know you know who they are, and you you responded by saying, "No, you didn't. You came from wherever else. You don't know you don't know your own history. You don't know your family. You don't know who you are. Uh, I know who you are. I know who you are because why? Well, because I'm a colonist and I have big guns. I don't." Yeah, yeah. It's really deeply, Excellent. deeply offensive. Excellent analogy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's where that. And God uh, told me who you are. Yeah, God <laughs> told me. Yeah. God right. told me who you I are. I have a feeling so you came from that. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I prayed about it. Really? You got a Jersey accent. You must have come from Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's just be respectful. That's all I know. Yeah. It, it is. Now, and in layman terms, really brought that home. That was really pretty powerful as you watch that uh, to see the native peoples and asking questions. They'd ask senior missionaries or missionaries that uh, working at different places, and it was fun. It, it, it was funny, but it was sad what they responded with. You know, they would tell them, "No, your your ancestors committed. You know, they were bad people, and they have bad culture." And and you could just hear it in Angelo's voice. He was like. I don't think my ancestors were bad. <laughs> you know? yeah, and that one, You're here telling me that. Yeah, that one part of the interview where he just flat out said, he said, well, I just, I don't believe that Lamanite story at all. And the, the guy tried very hard to say, well, I mean, uh, it kind of stumped him. It shocked him how bold he was. But then he came back and he tried to say, well, but there's, there's no other church out there who treats your people better i'm going really 
you know, Judas Priest, can you directly <laughs> lie any stronger? I mean, wow. Yeah, look at the size of the reservations in Utah. Oh, that, I, don't get me started. Yeah. Or, or here in Idaho. And the quality of the reservations is just, it's so sad. We still haven't rectified it. So, yeah. Well, Dr. Murphy, your work is not only impressive, but it really is important. And uh, I, I know most of us don't really see the progress you're making and all, but it's not a thankless job. That's one reason why we wanted so bad to have you on this show. One, because your expertise, and two, because you're a heck of a great guy, but your knowledge in this can help the rest of us who are so ignorant in at least beginning to try to appreciate others' cultures and respect it on its terms. It's very similar to my big beef with the, well, Mormon doctrine. They always try to Mormonize the Bible. I hate how they do that. Well, that's what they're doing with people. They're trying to Mormonize groups of people. And I find it a breath of fresh air and refreshing that you are standing up and we will now stand up with you starting with this podcast. We're going to do more with you also. And I know Mormonish wants to do some with you where we, we get to stand up with you and say, yeah, that's that's enough with the India. And I know there are people who are saying the same thing about the ridiculous Polynesian issue with the Mormons and Hagoth and the Book of Mormon and how they've tried to change their culture. I, I mean, the, the virus has spread to the point where we really do need to get a doctor in here like yourself and say, look, let's, let's get rid of the disease. So that's about the best analogy I can think of because I now see it as a disease. It's a disease of cultural murder and it's just immoral as far as I'm concerned. Uh, would I be, am I saying that too strongly? I don't, if I am, I'll admit it and say I'm guilty, but I'm still going to say it, but that's what it is in essence. I mean, the Indians, the, the Native Americans, the Eskimos, the indigenous peoples, no, South America, Central America, North America, they don't force white kids into their cities and cultures and tell them, oh, no, you can't cut your hair any longer and you can't wear that kind of clothing. And Oh, no, you have to change what you eat. And oh, no, 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 you don't get to spend your day doing what you used to. Now you have to do Nobody does that to us. Well, what the hell? How come we think we have that right to do that to others? So that's where the racism and the, well, you call it colonial. Colonial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The great westward expansion, manifest destiny, all that noise that we. <laughs> When, when do you expect your book out, Dr. Murphy? Yeah, yeah. When's your book? It's in review right now, so it'll be probably a year or two. Uh, and uh, I will be speaking, though, at the John Whitmer Historical Association. I will be one of the plenary speakers uh, speaking about what I call it. I call it the Peacemaker Epic and Iroquois Influence on Joseph Smith? Question uh, mark. And the preview is there are indigenous narratives uh, of a peacemaker uh, 
that have a lot of similarities with the Book of Mormon. And so I've gone back through the literary record of those oral traditions uh, and placed the Book of Mormon within the context of uh, these narratives. Uh, and uh, well, you'll have to- read. We'll have to read it. <laughs> oh, come on, tell us more, don't hold back. Th thank you for doing this though, because this is the yeah. kind of science that we need to have, you know, yeah. where you put these into the context, context of what was really happening and see how it flushes out, not use the book as the, you know, we got to try to prove the book. We've got to see how the book would fit into these, in, does it or does it not? And that's the kind of science we really need to, to see. So thank you for And, for and we will always agree with them sure the science is always going to be tentative yeah that's not the point exactly they're trying to make it seem like it's a negative it just isn't it's not a negative because like dr murphy and like dr rittner said well sure we don't know everything but what we damn sure do know is the papyri don't give us the book of abraham and the dna don't give us the book of mormon lamanites that we can say pretty certainly right so Thank you once again, Dr. Murphy. Rebecca, would you like to, do you have any last words you'd like to say to Dr. Murphy and all that? We'll let you. Well, I think my favorite statement is when Landon said, what would it look like uh, if there, if the Lamanites or Nephites had not existed? And Dr. Murphy said pretty much exactly what it looks like now. I think those are the words to take away from this episode. If there's anything that you want to take away, I think that was perfectly stated. And we just right. appreciate Dr. Murphy for being on here uh, so much. It was wonderful. And it was kind of last minute that we reached out. So we appreciate you being available and working with us on everything. I know it was, this is, this was a wonderful episode. I hope that your viewers loved it too. I, I am certain that they did. Thank you all. And we will, we will return with much more good quality information as we can, as fast as we can and share it with you. So appreciate all your support and love. And let's try to support the good scholarship, the science, the quality of information that we've all complained that the church has kept from us by buying Dr. Murphy's book when it comes out, like Dan Vogel's book. We would like to make sure that we sell out Dr. Murphy's book so it forces him to write a second edition. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.